the the whole sport <laughs> the, the sport is going full tour de france hey there welcome to hot takedown the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down today is may 11th 2021 and i'm sarah ziegler the sports editor at 538 joining me in new york city is senior sports writer neil payne hi neil hey sarah how's it going this morning uh, you know, and just having some computer issues, some issues with uh, R, with Excel, you know, all of my most beloved uh, apps are just uh, failing right now. Um, it's a tragedy. Yeah, it's it's a Greek tragedy. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure they dealt with Excel crashing also. I think I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, and from Los Angeles, it's 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. I just want to say, um, I think Neil has a I know you're having computer problems, but I think you have a fantastic mustache right now. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. That that means a lot from you. You you look like you look like uh, George Peros, uh, former goon of the Anaheim Ducks, turned director of player safety, turned malign NHL officer. Yeah, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the Rangers sent something asking for me to be removed from this podcast. Also, so, <laughs> it's a strongly worded letter. amazing um you guys we have to talk about horse racing which i know we don't normally do once we're a week out away from the kentucky derby wait i thought i thought this had become a horse racing podcast according to Um, one of our um reviewers i mean we do we do have to preview the preakness so (laughs) sure this Um, could become every week yeah 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 for sure. No, uh, Bob Baffert. Um, so, all right. So there was a, a positive drug test on his Kentucky Derby winning horse, Medina Spirit. Again. Still, yeah. <laughs> I, now they're still working to confirm that. And so maybe that will be all resolved by the time this podcast is out. But Bob Baffert went on Fox News and blamed the test, the positive test on cancel culture. Yes. And I'm sure he doesn't many know what questions. that means. <laughs> yes. How? He does. The, uh, just on top of that, just just to just to fully flesh out this story, it's important to note that our former president uh, Trump did refer to the horse as a junkie. Oh right. Which kind of is interesting because it does not fully align with Baffert and Fox News. He kind of went after the horse. It is a strange in general, to call a horse that's being injected with drugs a junkie, but we won't, you know, get into the practice. You of, don't know the uh, horse's intent. <laughs> it was don't the one. Don't take away the horse's agency. It was sneaking into the medical tent and grabbing yeah. the prescriptions. Right. There's At the very this... least, I saw Kirk Radomski or whatever, <laughs> the former <laughs> Mets clubhouse attendant, go in, you know. Sure, sure. No, it's a, it's so strange, though. It's like... He, he's arguing both things, both that they never used that drug on the horse, and then also that this is cancel culture run amok. It, it makes no way. sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And also, like, I mean, he's, like, advocating that there's some kind of conspiracy. I guess, like, someone is sneaking in and, and trying to sabotage his horses, which 
that it seems pretty devious if his uh, uh, opposing trainers are doing that overnight and only to him. Uh, I mean, he has one more than than right. them, so maybe that's why it's sour grapes or whatever. Maybe but security might be a good right, option. You'd for think you, there dude. would be high security at these uh, stables or uh, barns or wherever they keep these horses, but whatever. Uh, but what I think is really funny is he's saying there's a conspiracy against him, but there actually was a conspiracy to protect, justify yeah. one of his horses who ended up winning the Triple Crown in 2018 in which the Kentucky Derby uh, allowed him to run even though he had knowingly failed a, uh, a drug test and they sort of like slow played it and then changed the rules behind closed doors according to reporting from the New York Times in a way that suggests that perhaps Baffert's horse was there was a conspiracy that was pro Baffert so it's kind of interesting that now he's claiming there's a conspiracy against Baffert uh, when all evidence points to the, the sport you know sort of pulling strings for him in the past normally, you know, as you know, I am a proponent of cheating, but this kind of cheating is, is bad because, yeah, that's not you know, good. they're masking injuries to horses. I mean, and, you know, that's where, you know, if you, if you yourself want to, you know, do whatever, fine, but you can't, you shouldn't do that to horses. I'm just yeah, Barry be- Bonds could consent to injecting yes, exactly. the, or, uh, putting the cream on i guess medina spirit did not consent unless he is the junkie that president trump says he is <laughs> uh, the, the whole sport the, the sport is going full tour de france in that it it feels like it's imploding never go full tour de france i'm pretty you sure never i said want, that on this podcast yeah. before <laughs> Uh, they had this signature moment. It won, you know, this after this long wait for a triple crown, American Pharaoh wins a triple crown in 2015. And ever since then, it's just been bad news after bad news. Well, we'll find out uh, more about what happens there before the Preakness. On today's show, we'll talk about the Los Angeles Angels dropping Albert Pujols and what this means for his baseball legacy. Then we'll take a look at the WNBA, which starts its season this Friday. Given that the Atlanta Dream don't have a permanent head coach or a general manager, things should be interesting. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last Thursday, the Los Angeles Angels announced that they had designated Albert Pujols for assignment. The 41-year-old was in the final year of a 10-year, $240 million contract. It's not yet known whether Pujols will land somewhere else or retire just 33 homers shy of hitting 700. What is known is how basically everyone in baseball feels about the contract the Angels gave Pujols back in December 2011 before his age 32 season. On The Athletic Baseball Show, Ken Rosenthal was asked where, in retrospect, the contract ranked among the worst moves of all time, and if any player could rival Pujols as the holder of the worst contract. It's not the most glorious of competitions. But that player is Miguel Cabrera, who very well could meet the same fate as Pujols at some point. He is signed through 2023. His original deal with the Tigers, or second deal with the Tigers, eight years, $248 million. So he has this season and two more remaining. And right now, for that entire period, he's at 4.6 war. So that's even less than Pujols did over his 10 years with the Angels. Now, granted, it's fewer seasons, but it's not like Miggy's putting up three or four win seasons right now. They're negatives. And he's off to a horrible start as well. So people might say, okay, well, the lesson is never sign these guys long term. I don't agree with that. There have been some good long term contracts, surprisingly enough, with pitchers. Mike Messina was one. 
Max Scherzer right now is another one. He has probably exceeded, not probably, he has exceeded the value of his seven-year $210 million deal, which had all kinds of deferrals in it as well. And I believe that we're going to see some of the younger stars who have signed contracts in recent years, Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, Fernando Tatis Jr. Because they signed at a younger age, the teams will get more value out of those deals than they might have with Miggy or with Albert Pujols, who signed when they were in their 30s. Neil, you've looked at players who made a Hall of Fame case for themselves later in their careers. Do you agree with the adjusted lesson here that long-term deals can work as long as you sign them before you're 30? Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, if you look at the history of the big contracts and you kind of assess how much value the player added relative to uh, how much they were paid, you do see a pattern emerge. And, and this is something that I found when I grabbed the top 100 biggest contracts of all time, according to Spotrock, Spotrack, <laughs> however okay. we tr- yeah. we're chosen, uh, choosing to... Uh, Uh, pronounce that anyway when you look at those and you try to look at like who got value out of it based on position and age i think those are interesting splits because pre like batters that sign huge contracts before the age of 30 tend to get way more value they're 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 much more valuable relative to how much they were paid than batters that sign after 30 who are the worst contracts and that was sort of the albert pujols situation where you already had seen signs of decline with him in his final year with the uh, cardinals at age 31 and then he goes on you know going into his age 32 season signs this massive contract i think many people at the time were saying this is going to not just end poorly, but it's going to go poorly right. throughout the whole thing. And that's something that I think we kind of, that, that gets mixed up in the messaging around these contracts is, you know, all of them are going to look bad probably by the end in terms of looking at how much a player is making and how much they're producing. But it's really about the total amount of money that's paid in the contract and kind of that per year average versus how much the player produces on kind of a yearly basis over the course of the contract. And Pujols is definitely is in the conversation for the worst ever. What I thought was interesting about the splits, though, is that for pitchers, it's a little bit the opposite where pitchers that sign contracts before age 30 actually look a lot worse than pitchers that sign contracts after age 30. And and there may be something there about just we've I think we've spoken about this with pitchers before that this idea that durability is something that you kind of prove early in your career. So if you're like a Max Scherzer and you've proven that you can actually pitch, you know, uh, a lot of innings after your age, you know, your early like 20s, I guess, into toward your 30s, then those guys tend to hold up like pretty well. I mean, you look at other guys like Randy Johnson, Justin Verlander until like recently, a lot of those guys maintain their value deep into their their mid 30s or late 30s. And so in, in some ways, giving a pitcher a contract early you expose yourself to like, oh, we're not really sure about this guy's durability yet. It's still kind of up in the air. Whereas um, definitely giving the batters the contracts early tends to give you more value. And that's why the largest contracts now that are on the books, I think actually each of the top eight contracts in terms of the largest value were all signed before age 30. And that includes your Bryce Harper and your Mookie Betts and your Mike Trout and and your Fernando Tatis uh, is sort of the most extreme of that signed at age 22. But those 
those look like good bets and they're already kind of paying off better uh and and obviously you would expect the the contract to look better earlier because you're getting more of the prime years but that's also part of the point that w- somebody made the point that by the time Pujols was in year one of his Angels contract Mike Trout would be in like year five or six of his uh contract in terms of like the, the age versus the duration in so you're getting more prime years also when you sign a, a position player especially earlier on and I think that's the lasting legacy in some ways of of Pujols and not just him but like Miguel Cabrera uh, and the second A-Rod deal and a lot of these deals that really aged like milk uh, because they were signed with players that were that were old frankly yeah you know when the when the Braves when the young Braves um, stars uh, Acuna and Albies when they signed their big deals there was some like blowback from players that they were you know signing these long-term deals too early and they were kind of hurting the like free agent market for older players and yet you can see that as a reaction in some ways to the kind of deals that that Pujols and and Cabrera signed that you know teams are looking to lock up young great talent and that does kind of make sense it's just a different kind of approach to it than we were used to and I mean, I understand why older free agents aren't thrilled about that, but they should be mad at Albert Pujols, not at, yeah, you but know. You could say older free agents are making it bad for older free agents by not performing on the field. I mean, like, I just don't think we're going to see, just based on the last few off seasons, I don't think we'll see a big deal like the Pujols deal to a player at that age ever again. Now, in the Angels' defense, I will say it was very competitive and... He was the best player in baseball at the time. And I think, I don't think they thought they were going to get the full run of the contract, even at the time. I mean, it's sort of, that's sort of what you do. You you, you make, the, these guys want big contracts. So you kind of have to make a long contract to land the player. You know, it kind of reminds me of when the Mets got Pedro Martinez at the end of his career and they gave him like four years and it was just very clear he was not going to be good for four years. But it was kind of like, We'll take the two good years and then the two sunk cost years because it's still worth it. He's that good right now. The problem with Pujols is that he was never right that good right now. It, it almost seemed like the decline started the second he got to Los Angeles. And I think they really were not expecting that 2012, 13, 14, 15 to be as unproductive comparatively as they were. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a sad way for a, a, someone who was a star um, and someone who did have a really brilliant start to his career. It's, it's a sad way for it to end, though maybe there's never any great way, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, there, yeah, I would imagine most great players don't go out perfectly gracefully because it is such a, like, Pujols, to hear him, you know, some of the reporting around it, he still thinks that he can contribute, which is sort of flies in the face of his statistics, not just this year, but the past like four or five years. But he still has that belief, and that belief is what made him Albert Pujols in the first place. So it is sort of, I think there's always going to be that tension there at the end of a great player's career where they're kind of the last to know, right? Yeah, they're, when, yeah. when they can't do it anymore, uh, they're, they're the last to admit it. We have seen players do it. <laughs> uh, first of all, I, I'm outspoken, and I really hate the 
around the country goodbye tour where each oh the Derek Jeter given, memorial the, gift yeah, giving the, tour that was but, the worst. but it wasn't just Jeter it wasn't just Jeter it was also Rivera we saw this with Ortiz for sure we mm-hmm. saw this with Chipper Jones there are a handful of Hall of Fame caliber players who have been able to announce before the and actually you look at the numbers of of Chipper Jones and Rivera and Ortiz in particular, like they were Ortiz really, was great that last. They year. were really, really good their last yeah. year. So they did. There is a way to do it, and you go around and you get cowboy boots and surfboards and and <laughs> gifts from <laughs> that. The gifts from the opposing team in whatever sit that made me. I remember seeing the Jeter thing in Minnesota, and I was like, "Are you kidding me with this? Like, stop it's so it!" So strange. It's a terrible. <laughs> We at hate the Yankees, him, guys. Come on. <laughs> at least give him like a passive aggressive type of gift. I don't know what that would be, but like, try to figure like that fielding out. Fielding lessons? Yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> like Tom Amansky's defensive drills VHS <laughs> yes! for Jeter. It's like, hey, here, here's the here's something oh, you need. Um, yeah, that would I'm also perfect. you know, and I'm interested also around like it. It does kind of make sense that the Angels would do it this year, but also like it's the last year of the contract. You can kind of you know there there's not like a massive amount that you would need to like buy out but it is interesting that like the sunk cost fallacy definitely seemed to play a big role in why they didn't do it earlier right. because as we've right. been saying Pujols like it was pretty clear not just this year but really he's been a below replacement or generously at replacement level player since 2017 uh and and so at any point in that you could have probably negotiated some kind of buyout uh and and at least try to kind of move on but he was in this weird liminal space between like being the face of the franchise and arguably the face of baseball if you look back to the previous decade and so it's like do you cut that guy even if he's not performing maybe you're holding out hope that he can kind of rediscover it he had a lot of injuries so maybe each time it was sort of like oh well he's rehabbed it he's maybe feeling a little better he probably felt like he was in the best shape of his life every spring training because every player does uh (laughs) and so you know you could tell yourself maybe that uh it just makes sense to kind of keep him around but it really is i think also the sunk cost fallacy of we're paying this guy how much yeah and we want we're gonna pay him how much to go away well no he's you know he's being paid this much he's gonna be hitting in the middle of our lineup every day even if that makes Mike Trout not make the playoffs I mean that's the thing about baseball right you always think you can turn a corner I mean who if you're you know you can be the worst team in the league and still have a chance to win a game you always think all I got to do is put together a little run right as a team or as a player and and it's hard to let go of that of that idea even when it doesn't make sense you know (laughs) financially or in the, with the bigger picture you know the cost benefit there is not isn't there and it hasn't been there for a while and and i think another factor is that the power relatively like kind of hung around so it, it makes it tantalize and it makes you think that that player is still is still possible you know the player you you signed on to um but at the end of the day like getting 23 home runs on you know 600 plate appearances is not that really that impressive right in not anymore tw- yeah. in in 20 <laughs> in 2017 or 2018 um you know it's not like what 23 home runs was yeah 20 years before or 30 years before now this year it might be this <laughs> year it'd be great right. that but he's a weird, ball he's a weird it, it, his decline is strange because you know the power seemed to stay there but um he never was like one of these hitters he still doesn't strike out very much 
Um, he just kind of stopped walking and getting on base mm-hmm. and yet not striking out more, which it just is sort of an unusual you know, set of factors. Usually you would expect the guy's strikeouts to go up and uh, maybe his walks to go down, but it's it just like he always could make good contact. He just kind of lost the ability to you know, get on base in other ways besides hitting. And I think that's a big, I mean, especially that's why, you know, look at his rate stats. The OBP falls off a cliff the second he gets to LA. All right. So say the phone doesn't ring here. Nobody, you know, takes a a flyer on, on what remaining power he has. What is his legacy? How will we remember Albert Pujols when this is all said and done? I think, I mean, he's definitely a Hall of Famer and that even if it was built off the bulk of like the early part of his career, that early part of the career is one of the best we've ever seen anyone have, especially the first decade because he hit the ground running. I mean, he had a 1013 OPS at age 21 and I can maybe put that in air quotes. I know there's been, you know, questions about uh, how old he actually was when he debuted, but trusting baseball reference he's 21 uh he had 329 had 37 home runs 1013 ops uh one rookie of the year and was one of the best fielding first basemen too i think we forget that also you know during his his prime in st louis and he just kind of played at that level or higher for like a decade straight so i think we've never seen someone really kind of at their peak uh, seldom have we seen someone play that well that soon and sustain it throughout um, their first decade in baseball. So I think it'll be a little Griffey-like where the more time that passes, the more we forget the sort of broken down, you know, decline phase, uh, even if that was kind of the back half of both of those guys' whole careers. And instead, we remember the the brilliance of when they were younger and their peak uh, numbers. And eventually we'll sort of uh, acknowledge that Pools is not just a Hall of Famer, but like one of the inner circle Hall of Famers. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just the raw counting stats alone, you know, 3,200 plus hits. You know, he's almost has as many hits in his career as Willie Mays. Um, 667 home runs. I mean, the the... the if you kind of forget how it ended, the scope of his resume and the things he's done on the baseball field, especially in that 10 years, is is, is rarefied air. He's first ballot Hall of Famer. So I think at the end of the day, you know, the, the good thing about the Hall of Fame is that you got to wait a couple of years. And I think by the time we're giving our speeches, no one's going to be talking about <laughs> our speeches. <laughs> I'm not giving a speech unless Albert, if you're listening, I'm happy to give you a speech, even though, you know, I'm not a Cardinal fan or have any affiliation with the club. Um, <laughs> we do live in L.A. where yeah, you he played. Place, yeah. yeah, but, you know, not really Anaheim, Orange <laughs> County. But, right. I, I do. You know, you know, it's pretty far to... away. <laughs> yeah, we haven't really talked about his age and the the controversy about how old he actually is, which, uh, you know, I do. I sort of wonder if, you know, if if that hadn't ever happened and he was we knew his true age at the beginning of that contract, probably that contract doesn't get made then either. And maybe that's for the best for him, for his legacy. You know, this the last 10 years have not really helped his legacy um because of that contract so i wonder if that if that would have been different too i think you're right though that in the end this won't really matter we'll remember him for what he did at the beginning even though his his 2011 year in st louis they i mean they won the world series as neil said earlier which you know that's important to people who are uh 
pursuing players on the free agent market. Um, but he also finished fifth in the. I mean, his numbers were down, especially that, you know, OBP and the average and some of those things were, you know, you did see some signs that maybe a decline was happening. Although I, I think like everyone else, you could also write that off as a, as a kind of just a down year, but he also finished fifth in MV, MVP voting. I mean, he was, and had done and in the so postseason. He had a 12 straight OPS years. in the postseason uh, that year. I mean, he was he was the best player in baseball, and so he would have got a, a big contract, I think, anywhere. I just, I want for Albert Pujols, I want for him to be able to admit his age in his retirement. I want him to to feel free about that now and the rest of... I'm for his 55 years old. <laughs> yeah, for his post-baseball <laughs> career. Um, I'm actually older than Ricky Henderson. Yeah, <laughs> just just be yourself. Don't You don't have to hide for anyone anymore. All right, I think we can leave this here for now. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back to talk about the WNBA. The WNBA season starts on Friday, but there has already been a fair amount of drama in the lead-up to the regular season. Injuries have rocked the league. The Las Vegas Aces lost six-time All-WNBA forward Angel McCautry, who tore her ACL in a preseason game. And Minnesota Lynx rookie Renaya Davis is out indefinitely after suffering a stress fracture in her foot. There have also been some interesting transactions. The Chicago Sky abruptly traded Gabby Williams to the LA Sparks after first suspending her for the season, reportedly over her plans not to play for the Sky before the Summer Olympics. But maybe the biggest news came from Atlanta, which drafted March Madness breakout star Ari McDonald, but is down both a general manager and now a head coach. Nikki Collin traded the dream job no pun intended, for the chance to run Baylor's women's basketball program. On the Locked On Women's Basketball podcast, our 538 colleague Howard Megdahl talked about why the move made sense for Colin. You know, Nikki's going to make a great head coach at Baylor, I believe. A real fit, a real understanding for how the college game works. A lot of the reasons that we talked about why I thought she was going to do so well in Atlanta. You know, Kennedy Carter's in year two. Harry McDonald's a rookie, and the idea was, well, this is somebody who understands the mind of the young player, who understands how to get pieces to fit together. And these are the types of things that, if anything, are going to serve her even better at the college level. So this move and the timing of it, coming just before the start of the WNBA season, obviously puts the dream in a little bit of a bind. But Neil, do you think Baylor was just a better fit for Colin? Or does it say something about the WNBA that coaches are going back to that college level? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the the Baylor job is probably like one of the best jobs in women's college basketball. And so if it had been some other school that came knocking, she probably wouldn't do it. I mean, I don't have like great insight into what her decision making process was on that. But it does seem like I, I kind of agree that if you stay with the dream, they're projected to not be all that great. I mean, you know, they could be kind of interesting, but it, it's kind of a developmental type of uh, role. Whereas if you go to Baylor, 
I mean, this team just came off of very nearly going to the Final Four. They were champions uh, a couple years ago. So this is one of the best programs in women's college basketball. And presumably you can kind of build on that success and win right away and keep winning for a long time uh, just based on how long Kim Mulkey was there. So I, I kind of see that as being more of the factor of just sort of like, would you rather be in a developmental kind of, you know, uh, rebuilding situation in the pros, or would you rather go into like a really great situation where you can win right away and win for a long time, uh, in, in one of the prestige college programs? I think that's right. It's very, very unusual for a job like this Baylor job in both the women's side and the men's side to open up. Generally, if you're a coach of one of these programs that's been consistently good for a while and you've won three national championships, you stay there indefinitely. Yeah. yeah. You know, you look at like how long Pat Summit was there, how long Tara Vanderveer's been there, how long uh, Coach K has, has been in that job, which is sort of in the ballpark of equivalent job on the men's side. Uh, you don't go because the program is kind of recruiting itself at that point. The thing's kind of on autopilot. You're getting all the best players. You're not out there, you know, in staying overnight in people's houses trying to, you know, you know, scramble for the, you know, a, a, a three-star prospect or something like that and competing with all these other schools. The, the best players come to you. So the most difficult part of the college job is – a little bit removed from the equation, which is the recruiting. Um, that being said, it was unusual. Kim Mulkey, obviously, connections to LSU and from Louisiana. So, you know, having won a, another national championship, it was time for her to kind of go back to her roots. So there's a, you know, and that only happened recently. So it's a, it's a rare set of circumstances that open this job. And the timing, obviously, with the start of the WNBA, it's not ideal. But at the same time, the job's not going to be open in a couple of weeks. So yeah, I'm sure she wasn't happy with it. Yeah. Um, and now I do wonder, like, I don't have numbers to back this up, but I'm curious what you guys think. Where I do think that in women's basketball, college the college level is sort of closer in prestige or popularity or just, uh, you know, what people would be excited to be associated with uh, to the pros than on the men's side where sort of college programs, unless maybe it is like, hey, if the Duke job came open, I'm sure there's a lot of NBA coaches yeah, that there might go be. <laughs> for that. Uh, but but it does seem a little bit like uh, the college level is more on the same level of you know interest, popularity, prestige as the pro level on the women's side than on on the men's side. I, I don't know. I I feel like maybe this is wrong, but I I feel like for both both men's and women's basketball, I there's there are people who are pro coaches and just want to coach pros and don't want. Don't want it. I mean, don't you're right that in you know in the Baylor case, it's not the the recruiting is just not as much of an issue. But don't want to deal with recruiting. Don't want to deal with kids. Don't want to deal with the immaturity and the like, the you know, teaching kids. They want to deal with professionals. And then there are some people who's who have a heart for for students and and want to be around students and don't really want to deal with the egos of the pro game. I mean, you see that sometimes with coaches. Um, for both men and women who go kind of back and forth between college and, and the NBA, college and, and the WNBA. Um, I think of like Carolyn Peck, who, you know, led Purdue to a national championship, coached then for 
the Orlando WNBA team and then went back to college. You know, I feel like it's not, I think that this wouldn't, it, this wouldn't be quite so dramatic if it hadn't happened like right before the season started. And that's just a function of how, where the WNBA season falls in the college kind of calendar. And that it's different in the NBA because the NBA season is more closely aligned with college basketball. So you're not going to usually see some of this happen so fast. Yeah, that's a great point about like the nature of it being almost like opposite on the calendar probably played like a, a rather large role also. Yeah, in I the mean, timing. Like, you know, there, there's so Lindsay Gottlieb um, just was hired to coach the USC women's basketball team away from an assistant job in the NBA, which, you know, that that I mean, and it was just an assistant, not a head coach, obviously. But that didn't like no one was like, oh, my God, she's leaving the pros for college. You know, no one. No one even cared about that. No one even paid attention except that, oh, cool, she's going to coach USC. Um, so I do think that just the timing and the like the the kind of bind it left, <laughs> the dream in, like also also in Nikki Holland's defense, they don't have a GM. It is a little bit of a messy situation for a coach. So it's not that's it wasn't like the ideal pro situation. Um, and of course, I mean the team is gonna be younger and struggle a little bit. So I, I I do think there's it, it kind of looked bad, but I'm not sure it was really indicative of anything. I, maybe that's I, no, I, I think you're right. I think some coaches are better equipped um, j- just by the nature of their personalities and how they work with young players are better equipped for college and others are better dealing with professionals and and, and those sets of egos and personalities that come with it. Um, that being said, I think it's probably appealing you know you look at nalisa smith who's what she's going to be number one overall in a year and and, and having a, a someone with that wmba experience um and also in the recruiting phase for a top prospect saying hey i've, I've been in the wma I, I can make you the number one pick i know what they want um that that's a good you know that's sort of what calipari has been doing for years is like recruiting players by saying you want to be a top five NBA pick come come join my team I, I can get you there and that yes, works that's that's exactly what he's done nothing else nothing nothing shady at all just no that. I mean <laughs> no I mean in terms of you know being able to get these players I mean it is it is a big selling point if, if you're a high school basketball player um and you know look at the dream it's a mess i mean look what happened with that team and i it's it, the irony of ironies um that you know you would think when her players stood up to the owner um during the last summer you know, kelly loffler and all that with the black lives matter and she had their back and you know there's another time when that would have been career suicide and th- that probably helped her get this job because that earned so much respect among the players and, and young players and, and, and just to take that stand along with her, her team and not be, you know, fall in line with management. Um, it was impressive. Yeah, I do wonder if that helps her at Baylor. I mean, Baylor is a, you know, well, Kim Mulkey got herself in trouble with outside of Baylor by standing up for Baylor and their problems there. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting place. And I do wonder exactly how Nikki Collin will fit in or how much um, how much latitude she'll have there. Are, are you saying the, the Waco, Texas of it all? I, I am saying. The, <laughs> yeah, I'm carefully saying it's the not Waco, Atlanta. Texas of it all. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is a different, a different kind of environment. 
Um, all right. Well, so setting aside the dream for a moment, um, I want to talk more broadly about the league because we have very exciting news that our hot takedown listeners are, are getting early. So tomorrow we are rolling out WNBA predictions on the site for the first time. We built a WNBA model and with uh, predictions for games and for who will who will win it all. Um, so Neil, could you talk a little bit about you know what goes into making a new prediction model and if, if anything is different about this WNBA model from the other leagues that we cover? Yeah, it's it's pretty similar to what we've done for other leagues, just because that's kind of a proven formula that uh, does a you know we think it does a pretty good job. Uh, I, I would say it probably doesn't beat Vegas uh, <laughs> and not the Las Vegas Aces uh, in <laughs> uh, in predictions, but it it you know kind of gives you a snapshot of how strong each team is at each time. Uh, and so yeah, it's kind of the next logical sport for us to add was the WNBA um, going into this season. And so uh, my colleagues, uh, Jay Boyce and Ryan Best, they they built the model. They um, gathered data going back to 1997, the start of the WNBA, uh, and just sort of built it. Uh, it's, it's similar in the way that we started out with football and, and with baseball and some of these other ones. The NBA model is a little bit different because it uses uh, player ratings, uh, whereas this one is not going to be that. You know, it's not going to have like injuries necessarily show up in the same way uh, it's kind of similar to football where like you have to give it a little time uh, to, to, to show up in a team's performance if, if someone is out. Um, but it does take into account, you know, all the usual like home court uh, playoff you know bonuses where where we found that team uh favored teams tend to do better in the playoffs than they do in the regular season um we we also an interesting difference was that um WNBA teams kind of that things reshuffle more during the off season i think this is a great illustration uh, this this particular off season was a great illustration of that with a lot of players on the move a lot of players who sat out last year coming back uh, maybe a lot of players who were injured also uh returning uh, and, and so we found that in order to set up team's preseason rating in the WNBA, you have to regress them to the mean by 50%, uh, which in baseball and football, that number is only 33%, uh, roughly a third, which I found interesting, that difference in, in how um, you kind of set things in the preseason. But aside from that, it's, it's very similar to the other models. And then we simulate out the season 100,000 times and track how often each team wins. And, you know, since it is lar- heavily based on last Last year, um, kind of regressed to the mean, the Storm, who really, I think, not enough was said about how historic the season that they had uh, was last year. They only lost four times all year. Uh, their peak ELO rating uh, by the end of the WNBA Finals was the second best ever, only trailing the 2000 Houston Comets. Um and so when you regress them back to the mean and then simulate the season, they still have a 33% chance of winning the finals, uh, according to our preseason model. But of course, there's a lot of things that uh, have changed, especially with that team, which went on a crazy flurry of, of trades in, in like a week's period. They traded away some of their best players, had the number one overall pick, then traded the number one overall pick for other players. Like it was a very strange offseason uh, to see from the defending champs. And so I think that's why there's a a lot of uncertainty also um, in in the model going into a new season is stuff like that can happen uh, in the WNBA. Yeah, you know, so the the storm are we give them a uh, one in three 
chance of winning it all, which is like, it feels really high, but also they're really good. So I guess that makes sense. We give them a, you know, better than 50% chance of making the finals, um, which is kind of wild. And then we've got the aces and the sun right behind them, which also sort of like, that's kind of, you know, what, what last year sort of looked like, um, followed by the sparks and the links. This, I think this is going to be really fun to be able to track these teams like this um, and, and see, you know, the ebb and flow of a season from this perspective. Um, It's, you know, it's something that I really love about our other models, getting to watch a team rise and fall based on, you know, what's happening and and changing our expectations about a team throughout the league, throughout the season, which I'm really, I'm really excited to do. So those, uh, those predictions will be live on the site tomorrow, which we're super excited about. Neil has a story explaining them all. So you can read Neil's words about the model tomorrow as well. All right, well, we can take a break right now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. What do you have for us, Neil? Yeah, I'm going to return to the ice to talk about hockey, uh, which I feel like... It's a hockey podcast. um, Yeah. For, for all those iTunes uh, reviewers out there, we've become a hockey podcast officially in the final few minutes. Uh, so so leave your reviews accordingly. No, I want to talk about Connor McDavid of the Edmonton Oilers, uh, who is having just one of the most ridiculous seasons, I think, not just of any hockey player in recent memory, but any athlete period uh in recent memory so mcdavid he currently leads the nhl in scoring which he's done before he did it in 2017 uh and 2018 uh he has 102 points well he's cracked 100 points before he did it in 2017 2018 and 2019 the difference this year though is that in those previous years it was an 82 game schedule which is the norm for the nhl in most non-pandemic seasons this year though the nhl schedule is shortened to 56 games uh, his his team has only played 54 games uh the the north division had uh some issues with uh covid earlier so they're they're a little behind uh in terms of their uh, games played uh compared with the rest of the league anyway mcdavid he's got 33 goals and 69 assists for 102 points in 54 games. The idea that someone could reach this benchmark, because 100 points is like this magic number in the NHL, where if you reach that, uh, you are having a really good offensive season. Usually uh, it leads the league, you know, if you're at that or a little bit above that. There have been some seasons, uh, particularly during the dead puck era uh, of days gone by, uh, a.k.a. my childhood, in which no one scored 100 points the league leader would be in the you know mid to high 90s and there was a lot of hand wringing around that but I don't think anyone thought going into this season that someone could actually crack 100 points in a uh, 56 game schedule Uh, and and if you had to guess who it would be yes it would be McDavid but just the sheer pace that you would need to do to do that you would need to score 1.79 points per game which over a full 82 game schedule would work out to 146 points which was something that no one had done in the NHL uh, in a long time the highest that we had seen recently 
was uh, Nikita Kucherov had 128 points uh, in the 2019 season. And that was a lot. That was the the most uh, by someone, uh, I think, going back to like the 90. Oh, no. Uh, Yarmar Yager had 123 in 2006. So that was like, you don't see guys scoring 120 points in a normal season under current NHL conditions, much less in a shortened 56-game season. So uh, the fact that McDavid has done this is really like you you can't it's it's hard to overstate what an accomplishment this is and again he's not done yet uh there were kind of questions of whether he would even get to 100 uh you know a couple weeks ago not only has he done that but he has surpassed it and with a couple games left he still has uh some room to to pour this on so i think one of the big questions with this now is just where does this rank all time in terms of historically great seasons? It's something that, you know, again, if you're just looking at the most points anyone has ever scored in a season, you probably won't, and you don't know the context around this year, you won't necessarily understand the magnitude of it. Uh, For instance, 102 points in a season is only tied for uh, 221st all time on the list of uh, greatest scoring seasons in the history of hockey you know it's something that has been it's 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 been done before by many players but uh what i think is more useful to contextualize this is to look at what hockey reference has uh they call it adjusted points where they take into account schedule length they also take into account roster size uh this is more of a factor for earlier years where um in theory players who uh played a larger share of the game should see their stats sort of decrease a little bit because they had more opportunities and then also they take into account and then this is big is the scoring environment of the season in which the the numbers were put up uh and the nhl right now uh, the the average goals per game is 2.93. That's a lot higher than it was a few years ago when McDavid came into the game. But there have been some seasons like in the 1980s where teams were scoring almost four goals per game. Uh, and the, that was not a coincidence when Wayne Gretzky was sort of putting up his, his numbers uh, at his peak, like 215 points is the all-time record that he did in, in 1986. So Hockey Reference tries to kind of account for all of that uh, and and adjust uh, every player to a neutral environment, both in terms of schedule length and in terms of scoring environment. And when you do that, you find that McDavid has 168 adjusted points this year, which is tied for the third best ever. And uh, I should also put a little bit of an asterisk on the number one and the number three, the the other guy tied with McDavid, uh, which were done by Howie Morenz and uh, Cooney Wheeland, because both of those guys did it in the 1920s. Uh, Wheeland's was in 1929 30. Uh, and it was just... I don't know how to necessarily contextualize the game as it was played then. It was a very long time ago, almost 100 years ago. Uh, The only more recent season that rates higher than McDavid's 2021 
was Wayne Gretzky, 170 adjusted points in 1986. So McDavid is only two adjusted points shy of Gretzky, what we could consider to be sort of the greatest, at least modern, scoring season of all time when we adjust for all of the different contextual factors. McDavid is ahead of Mario Lemieux's best season of 165 uh, adjusted points uh, from 1989. Uh, he's ahead of Yager's best season, which was 1999, only 145 uh, adjusted points. Uh, and, and really ahead of all of the other seasons in there, there's uh, anytime you're ahead of Gretzky seasons and Lemieux seasons from the 1980s in any stat ever, you are in territory where we're talking about one of the best, if not the best seasons ever. So we'll see where McDavid ends up. Like I said, he has a couple more games left. He could maybe bump up, juice that 168 number, maybe make a run at Gretzky. He probably won't make a run at Howie Morenz, who was at 190. I'm sort of arbitrarily choosing to maybe think about discarding that (laughs) one when talking about it. Um, But shout out to Howie, great player, of course. Um, But uh, yeah, just the fact that McDavid has done this um, I think is uh, it, it might run the risk of being overlooked just because it has happened in this pandemic season. He's only playing against the other Canadian teams. Uh, and so you could kind of make of that what you will. But I think just on a in terms of pure offensive production, this is the type of season that hockey hasn't seen in a long time. And I think the comparisons McDavid has long been sort of compared with Gretzky, both because they play for the Oilers, uh, you know, starting out, um, but also uh, just as this generational type of prospect in the same conversation as like a Sidney Crosby or someone like that. But McDavid has is has having a better season than any of Sidney Crosby's, um, according to this, and really most of Gretzky's also, and that's like a huge accomplishment. If you were to throw him into a flying DeLorean um, and set it for, you know, mid-80s Edmonton. Oh, my God. Would... He would score 200 <laughs> easily, very yeah. easily. Yeah, for sure. Given especially the goalies back then, I mean, you watch some of those Gretzky highlights where the goalies are so much smaller, so much less well-padded, yeah. and also so much technically worse. Yeah, they they're never, flailing like, all over the place. And, <laughs> yeah, it's like, and it, 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 it looks kind tiny. of makes Yeah, it makes sense that Gretzky scored 92 goals in a season. Whereas, like, if you look at some of the, just pull up the highlights of McDavid this season and look at just how little space he has to shoot at when he's scoring these goals and still the fact that he's been able to do it. And that's on top of, obviously, the assists and, like, the insane setups that he's done for, for his teammates. It really is, like, on just another level. And I think it is fair. You could kind of make the case, at least, that this is the greatest, at least offensive season uh, by anyone in, in hockey history. I have this image now of Connor McDavid in a DeLorean going back to the 80s, but taking the today modern like hockey padding and like ideas about goaltending with him. So his team. Yeah. So his team like has this amazing new goal scorer, but also like the, the modern um, goalie technology. And they just, they just run away with it in the eighties and they, they change history. It's a very, it's a retelling of back to the future that um, I think we should get made like immediately. You guys. 
Although we do know from the Terminator franchise that you can only take genetic material back in time with you. So it'd be a, no, a oh, naked sorry. Connor McDavid would but emerge would in a knowledge. parking lot. <laughs> he would have the knowledge. Right, right. Sorry. Can't yeah, take that's that right. Sorry. He could go up to Grant Fuhrer and say, hey, Grant, why don't you make, uh, get some bigger pads? Right, right. Drop down to your knees every once in a while. You know, a lot of gold is stored illegal. down there. Why are your pads so small? It doesn't make sense. Make them bigger. Get that blocker bigger. Get those leg pads a little wider. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that rabbit hole, Neil. That will do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.